0: Amen. How we doing, church? Doing okay? You look good. Happy Mother's Day. We'll get to that in a second. Get this out, get out your bulletin. On this little tear-off piece, there's some information about how you can get involved um, in loving our community. And so, you know, this series that we're in is called Give Love a Try, and we want you to give it a try by going out this week and buying that grocery list that's here. And then once you think, well, that's not very much, then do it three times. Bring it back next week. And if you're a guest with us, you gotta come back next week and drop off your canned goods. And listen. Uh, 1122 doesn't give leftovers, so don't just go to your pantry and, and get the dented stuff that you don't like anymore, okay? Go get the good stuff and bring it here. We're going to bless a lot of people in Jesus' name. Also, big, big day, right? It's Mother's Day. If I could have all the moms stand up, please. If you're a mom, please stand up. Let's give it up for the mamas. Yay, 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 yay. <laughs> all right, stay standing. Hold on. I know y'all hate this. You're like, oh. but listen, listen. I know that Jesus is the head of the church and the husband's the head of the house, whatever, but the moms are the backbone of both, that the reason all of us are here are by the faithful prayers of faithful mamas, and so we say thank you, thank you, thank you. So one more time, a big old hand to our mamas. And so somebody's going to take you to eat wherever you want today and tomorrow morning for breakfast, and you get to pick and make it real expensive, okay? Good. Also, I know that sometimes Mother's Day is not the most awesome day for some of you, um, and let me just tell you this—a little bit of quick theology. That God creates Adam and Eve, and Eve's name means the mother of all living things. And she was given that name; she didn't have any babies yet. Okay. And so God has wired you, ladies, to be a mom, and we need that. We need that in this church family. And so um, maybe you know maybe your life is not exactly where you thought it was going to be, or maybe today's rough because this is your first year without your mom, or or the mom of your kids, or something like that, or maybe. Um, you were here and you thought your life would look totally different, just know this, that God works in all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That we are a big old church family here and we need all of you to be moms somewhere, either in our new gen ministry area or training up young women or or just being a, a significant part of of what God is doing here in this place. And so just know that we love you and the Holy Spirit meets you right where you are. And if you wouldn't mind, if you would just pray, bow your head right now. If you're sitting next to somebody and you know today might be a rough day, maybe you could just reach over and hold their hand. Or or maybe if you're sitting next to your mom, then you would reach over and hold your mom's hand and let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much that when you created all mankind, you created us to reflect your image, male and female, you created us. And God, we thank you for the faithful prayers of mamas. God, we know that they are the backbone of the church and our families. And God, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be present today for those who today is a tough day. God, I pray that you would lead, you would guide, you would direct. God, I thank you for ministries born out of pain here at our church like Operation Adoption. And Lord, I thank you that you've opened up the eyes to many, many families to realize that they've been called to adopt. God, thank you for that. God, we, we know that you meet us in our, in our toughest times. That you weep with those who weep and you mourn with those who mourn, but God, you also dance with those who dance. And God, for, for all of those, God, for all of those things, we thank you that you are sovereign and that God that you love us and you demonstrated it by sending Jesus to die on a cross for us. And God, I hope today, regardless of situations, Lord, I hope today that you are glorified and that our joy is made complete in you and you alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab it. We're going to be in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. At this point in the series, we're five weeks in. I can no longer recap the series. So if you haven't downloaded the app yet, you can do that during the sermon. And you can go back and watch the sermons there so you can catch up. But essentially, 1 John is all about one thing it's about the assurance of our salvation. It's about the assurance of our salvation. And what John wants you to know, he wants you to be assured that you are saved if you've admitted that you're a sinner, that you believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross that it counted for you and you've confessed him as Lord. If you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, then you have the assurance of salvation and the assurance of your salvation is not rooted in your good works. It's rooted in the good work of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, And so with that, he does not want you to be falsely assured. He does not want you to think that you're a Christian just because you go to church. He doesn't want you to think that you're in Christ just because your grandma was in Christ. But but he wants you to be rooted in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole book is about. And so today what we're going to talk about is the reality that love abides. And we're going to pick it up in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 15. The Bible says this. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that's a problem because we all love some stuff in this world. And for some of you Bible nerds who are like, whoa, 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 whoa. How can the Bible say, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him? Because I know John 3.16. I've read Tebow's face. I know what it says. And it says, for God so loved the world. So how do those two things simultaneously exist? How does the Bible say here in 1 John 2, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And yet, John 3.16, same author says, For God so loved the world. we got to know a little bit of Greek, which I know you all do. Come on, you're sharp. The word there is cosmos, and it can mean really one of two things. All right, Sometimes, sometimes it means like the patterns and the systems of this world. And in John 3.16, when it says God so loved the world, it primarily means that God loves the people of this world. He loves the people of this world, including you, so much that he sent his one and only or only begotten son to shed his blood on the cross, to purchase us, to be in a right relationship with him. And yet at the same time, we are to reject the patterns and the values of this world. It's why Paul says in the book of Romans, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, there is a way this world does stuff that we as Christians are to reject the way this world does stuff. Like the way the world tells us to do money. You know how the world says to do money? Um, pay for it later, let somebody else pay for it. You get what you want now. God says, if that's the way you live, then I'm not a part of you. All right? Or the world says it's got a pattern or a way to talk about sex and do sex. And it basically says, if it feels good, if you like it, go for it. Just be safe. And how's that working out? Not too good. And so what what John is saying here is that we are to reject the patterns of this world while simultaneously loving the people that God loved and sent his son on a rescue mission to save. That we're to love the people of this world to reject the patterns of this world. Most of the time, we get those two things reversed. That we reject the people of this world somehow in the name of our faith, and yet we love the patterns of this world. And so John says, don't do that. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Essentially, what he's talking about here is he is talking about citizenship. Where are you truly a citizen of? And if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, then act like it. Then love the people that God loves and gave his life for and reject the systems of this world because your citizenship is not here. It would be like when I go to Uganda on a mission trip. I love Ugandans. I love the country. It's fine enough. But there are some systems there that I wholeheartedly reject. Like, Like their toilet system, I reject it. I like ours way better, okay? I do not adopt theirs when I get back home. If a war were to break out between their country and our country while I was there, guess who I'm fighting for? Go red, white, and blue. I'm on the home team. And so, essentially what he's saying is, so where is your citizenship, then act like it. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, he's about to sum up everything that this world has to offer, this is it. For all that is in the world, and there are three things that this world has to offer, here it goes, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. that's it, that's it, that's all this world has to offer. By the way, you've heard me talk to you before about me being a terrible counselor, right? Like I don't, all, all So many of you guys want to sit down with me and talk about your life, and that's fine. But I tell you, I'm a terrible counselor, and here's why. Because there's only three problems in the whole world. I didn't make them up. They're all right here. And here's what makes me a bad counselor. To be a good counselor, you're supposed to listen. I'm not good at that. So in about three minutes, I can tell you which one of the three problems that you have. And then you just want to keep talk, talk, talk. And I'm like, all right, shut up. Listen, here's your problem. Here's what you do about it. And I don't even charge, okay? So I would suggest you go to a professional counselor. They'll give you the full hour I want. So here's why. I didn't make it up. It's just right here in the book. Everything you deal with, everything I deal with, can be summed up, at least according to the word, right here. That all that is in the world is one of these three things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever so let's unpack these three things okay the first one the desires of the flesh now 100 years ago i memorized it in the new international version and it says the lust of the flesh i like that better the lust of the flesh all right the lust of the flesh is passion it's it's appetite it's uh, almost immediately everybody goes to sex and you're right okay it is it's it's the reality that you and i are a big ball of appetites that are never fully and finally satisfied the, the lust or the desires of the flesh is when you want to satisfy yourself, when you want something. Sometimes it can be a very legitimate appetite. That's fine. But, but it's that kind of idea that says, hey, look, I want it my way, and this is what I like, and this is what I want, and this is what I'm passionate about. And so it's, it's just that kind of, those kind of passions. The second one, the desires of the eyes or the lust of the eyes, it's about possessions. It's about stuff. It's about those affections. It's about I see something and I want it, okay? And listen, husbands, this isn't just your wife that does this, this is you too. Remember the last time you were walking through Lowe's and you saw something, you'd be like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know I needed that until I saw it. How have I lived my whole life without that thing? And then you can begin to obsess over that thing. Here at the Church of 1122, we affectionately call this the cul-de-sac of stupidity, All right, It's when you think the stuff of this world is somehow going to satisfy you. Eh, eh, and it's like, all right, I, I bought these great clothes, but now these clothes aren't doing it for me. I know what I need. I need more clothes. Or I bought this great house, and it was awesome for a little while, then the new house smell wore off, and now and it's not that great anymore. I bought a new car, and the new car smell went away, and now I need another new car. These material things won't satisfy. I know the answer. More material things. And then welcome to another laugh in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. It's when we begin to focus our eyes on the stuff of this world. And then the third one is the pride of life. It's about position. It's about status. It's about ambitions. It's about, doggone it, people respect me, and I've worked hard to be in this position. And you see my name tag right there, Jack? It says assistant manager. You better listen to what I say, all right? You see, it's the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, or passion, possessions, positions, sex, stuff, status, appetite, affections, ambitions. The reality is, is that is that this week, when you're flipping through when you're flipping through television channels and commercials come on, here's what marketing people know is they know that this world only has three things to offer, and there's one of three hooks are, is what's going what it's gonna take to get you to buy these products. And so you could identify how how commercials are trying to hook you. Like for instance, if you flip through and you see a Hardy's commercial about that thick burger, you know what that is? That's the desires of the flesh. Not just hamburgers either, is it? You're like, good gracious, I didn't know you could look like that eating a hamburger. That must be one delicious hamburger. And you watch that and you go, I am starving. Why am I so hungry? First of all, if you're American, you're never starving. All right, if you ate today, you ain't hungry. That's why we're going to get a bunch of groceries, bring them back next week, all right? But that's what that is. That's just about an appetite, an appetite, all right? Or the desires of the eyes about possessions. It's basically every light beer commercial. Every light beer commercial you've ever seen, it's all the same way. Everybody's like on the beach and they're drinking light beer and they're playing volleyball and everybody's fit and, you know, hitting it and it was great. And then you watch it and you're like, man, that's what I want. I think if I drink light beer, I'll be fit and have friends. No, no, no. You'll get fat and drunk. That's where you'll be like, are you sure? Because I'm, yeah, I promise, okay? You will. It does not offer, it, does, it can't give you what it promises. And that is the bait of the enemy. That's the bait of this world. That the enemy will bait you down a path and then blame you for walking down it. Or the pride of life, it's about status. It's about being impressive. I'm telling you, you watch every car commercial and it's pretty much that. Because you can, you can tune in and you say, you know what, if I drive a Lincoln... late at night then maybe I too could be just like Matthew alright, alright, alright McConaughey no you can't no you can't you buy a Lincoln at best you're qualified to be an Uber driver that's it, okay that's it but this is this is everything the world has to offer there it is summed up in, in these three things and the reality of this is is that the, while the enemy may be really, really crafty He's not very original. He's only got three tricks. That The enemy's only got three tricks to come at you with. And one of the things that's helped me in my walk with Christ as I've tried to kill the sin that is trying to kill me, it helps me to identify which one of the three that he's coming after me with. And the reality is it's his only three tricks all throughout the Scriptures and all throughout human history. And so if you've got your Bibles, jump all the way back to the beginning, the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. And you're going to see the common temptations that every man and every woman have ever struggled with. They're right here. Now the reality is, is that God, in an overflow of God's love for God's self, He creates all of mankind in His own image, male and female, He created them. With, with, with the image of God, the Imago Dei, inside of them to reflect who God is. And so, if a lot of you think that, hey, God's really into rules, God isn't into rules as much. And you can know this because in his original creation, it was all about relationship. He created man. He said it's not good for be, a man to be alone. And so, and so he creates Eve. And they are in this perfect relationship together. And they walk around in the garden with God every day in this intimate fellowship with God. And that's what. And God had one rule, all right? By the way, you know what? Before he got to the rules, you know what one of his first commandments to Adam and Eve were? You can look up for yourself. One of the first commandments is this. Be fruitful and multiply. Can I get an amen? Very deep. Amen. <laughs> yeah, that's what God said do. Made them without clothes and said, get to work, all right? Praise God. I know some of you are visitors and you're like, baby, I love this church. I don't think we should come back. You should. That's what God's into, all right? Procreation and recreation. And then, He gives them one rule, one set of boundaries. Whatever you do, don't go near, don't touch, don't eat that from the fruit of that tree. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis chapter 3. It says this. says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said, this is the enemy, he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You see, one of the things that the enemy is going to do when he comes against you, and he's going to come against us all this week, and one of the first things that he will try to get you to do is to doubt your beliefs and believe your doubts. That's what he wants you to do. The worst thing for the enemy would be if you actually believe what you believe and doubt what you doubt. And what he wants you to do is doubt what you believe and believe what you really doubt. And so he says, are you sure that's what God said? Verse 2, and then the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. By the way, Jesus, I mean, God didn't say anything about the touch part. And what begins to hear, what, what happens here is she, the woman misquotes the scriptures. She begins to twist the word of God to say something that God didn't say. And that's always, oh, he's always, always a problem. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There's, there's the enemy's first lie. Because all he wants to do is lie to you. It's the only language he knows is the language of lies. Now, how do we know that he lied? You know how we know? Anybody seen Eve lately? No. Why? Wow, she dead. Okay, that's what happened. You will not surely die. Liar. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, And check this out. And you will be like God. There it is. The first temptation is right here. It's the pride of life. Essentially, <clears throat> essentially what the pride of life is rooted in is this. As the enemy will come and say, hey, listen, I think you could be a better job of being the Lord of your own life than God is at being Lord of your life. I think you know better how to take care of you than your creator knows how to take care of you. And at the root of that, I mean, you want to talk about position. You want to talk about status. There is no higher status than trying to be the God or the Lord of your own life. And so he says, listen, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. And so, when the woman saw, check it out, that the tree was good for food, there's the second temptation right there. Desires of the flesh. When she saw that it was good for food. By the way, what this desire of the flesh or the lust of the flesh is, it's trying to meet a legitimate appetite in an illegitimate way. There were many, many, many legitimate ways for Eve to fulfill this appetite of hunger. I and mean, there was only one illegitimate way, and she decided to go that way. And so. It says, so when the woman, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was, here's the third one, delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. And check this out. Here's where it gets worse. And she also gave some to her husband who was, what does it say, man? Yeah, see, that was the problem. See how quiet it is here? Like, I don't know. I don't really read the Bible. That's the problem. So the enemy comes at her with all three, with all three right there. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then, so she eats it, and original sin enters. And then for the longest time, I thought, I thought Adam, poor Adam, you know, he just got tricked by his evil wife, and he was out fishing and cleaning fish or whatever he was doing, or maybe in his man cave, you know, memorizing Bible verses or something. And then she tricked him, made like an apple pie, and brought it to him, and said, hey, try this, and he ate it. And that's not the way it went at all. What happened is, here's Adam, the Bible says, is with her, with her, and he doesn't speak up at all. Literally, in Hebrew, it means, it means uh, elbow to elbow. And so from the very beginning, what happens is um, the man doesn't step up and be the man that God has called him to be, to step up and provide and protect for his wife. And the enemy comes, and he's crafty, and he tricks her and essentially tricks both of them with one trick, because he's only well, a, a set of three tricks, because that's all he has. And it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. In verse 7, it says, And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. And this is where religion begins. This is where religion begins. Because in that moment, they they feel naked and ashamed, and they run and they hide, and they sew together fig leaves, and essentially they say, God, we're not going to run to you when we stumble and fall. We're going to run away from you, and we're going to make a covering for ourselves. That's why we studied in week two of First John that if you're in Christ and you are to walk in the light, that doesn't mean that you will never stumble and fall. It means that when you do, you run to the light instead of to the darkness. And here's, here's where religion begins. And then, you see, so original man fails at original sin in all three areas. And I could t- if I had time, I could walk you all through the Old Testament and all the Old Testament characters, Sunday school heroes that you learned about and how, how when they fell, it was in one of these three arenas. But I don't have time for that, so I want to fast forward to the New Testament and see how Satan comes at Jesus with the same three temptations. And the reason why is because that's all he has available to him. And so, if you go to Matthew chapter four, Matthew chapter four, beginning in verse one, this is known as the uh, when Jesus in the desert, the temptation of Jesus. It starts out this way: Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. You think? Verse two, three. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. Does that sound familiar? Remember how he came to Eve and said, Did God really say? You see, one of the things, I'm going to repeat it, because he's going to repeat it to you often, is he will try to question your identity. One of the first ways that the enemy tries to shake us up and soften us up for one of his three tricks is is to get us to question our identity. Are you sure you're really a Christian? Because if you really were, you wouldn't do these kind of things. And if you really were, wouldn't you worship with your hands up more? Or wouldn't you pray more? Or wouldn't you read your Bible more? Are you sure you really are? And so he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here it is, the desires of the flesh. Jesus, aren't you hungry? Uh-huh, 40 days, 40 nights fasting, I'm kind of hungry, all right? Well, then why don't you use your own power to take care of your own needs? So You see, a part of the temptation of the enemy here is, if you've got an appetite, then shouldn't you do something about it the way you want to do it? I mean, this is the way our world thinks, that you can have it your way. That whatever you want to do, then you should do for you, as long as it's not hurting anybody else. And you see, it's essentially this. It's rooted here. It is, it is the desire, desire of the flesh that we have these Do we have these legitimate desires that we want to meet in illegitimate ways? But Jesus is going to answer this way. He says, it is written. It is written. In other words, Jesus is going to quote Bible verses. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, he says, I'm not going to sin and misuse my power to temporarily satisfy an appetite. Because Jesus also knows is that appetites can only be temporarily satisfied. That's why he says that man can't live on bread alone. Because here's, here's the crazy thing. We, we, it's almost like we have appetite amnesia we have these legitimate appetites and then many of us meet them in an illegitimate way and when we get to the end of that road, we think, I'm never going to do that again. I don't ever want to feel this way again. I don't want to break a promise to me. I don't want to break a promise to God. I don't want to feel used. I don't want to feel mistreated because we have these appetites and maybe we turn to food or maybe we turn to sex or, or, or maybe we turn to this jacked up relationship that we've been in or maybe we turn to drugs or too much alcohol or whatever it is and you go down that road and you think, oh, I can't believe I did that again and then... And then we make a promise, and and maybe we have some regret and resolve. And the crazy thing is, the next time that appetite raises up again, it's almost like we forgot where it took us last time. That's why Jesus is saying here, look, you can't live on bread alone. You can't live on just temporarily fulfilling these appetites, because the crazy things about appetites is they come back. And everybody experiences this. God gives us this incredible parable that we get to live out every single year. It's called Thanksgiving, It is a reminder that you can never be fully and finally satisfied. Because how many of you, you you step up, some of us, we step up to Thanksgiving this year and we're like, I am not going to eat too much this year. Don't you promise that stuff every year, you bunch of liars? You do. You get up to the plate and then you start loading up and then you're just like, well, it's for the pilgrims, right? And you get it all there. And you eat and you eat and you eat. I mean, sometimes, you know, you unbutton that pants. Some of you just come in and you tap out early. You come to dinner with yoga pants on. You're like, whatever, I'm doing this. And you eat, and you're about to explode, and you're like, oh, man, I can't eat another bite. And then they say, do you want dessert? Well, does it have ice cream? "Uh Uh-huh. Well, okay, well, that'll just kind of get all around it and solidify it and be better. And so you eat ice cream, too. My son, JP, tells me that you have a, um, a dessert shelf in your stomach, so I think you might be right. It's probably in the Bible. And so... That shelf can be empty while the rest are full. And so, you know, I'm going to go with him on that. And so you eat that, and you're just about to explode. And then the trip to from the turkey kicks in, and you're trying to watch Detroit lose again, and then you fall asleep. And you wake up, halftime, Dallas is on. And what do you do? I mean, two hours earlier, you're like, I am never eating again for the rest until Christmas. I'm not going to eat. And just a few hours later, you're back in the kitchen. Anybody want a turkey sandwich? Yeah, why? Because your appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied. And so Jesus is saying, you can't live on ap- satisfying appetites alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because it's only God that satisfies. And every time the enemy comes at you with the desires of the flesh, you've got to understand that even meeting those legitimate de- desires in an illegitimate way will not satisfy. So that's strike one to the enemy. Second one is verse 5. It says, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you are the son of God, by the way, what does he do again? He wants him to question his identity. This is how the enemy was going to soften you up when he's trying to take you out. This is why over and over and over and over, I try to let you know that if you're a Christian, then your identity is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, period. Your identity is not in what you've done. It's not in your appetites. Your identity is not your sin. Your identity is not your addiction. Your identity is not in your past. Your identity, you're not identified by your failures. You're, not, you're also not identified by your successes and how long you've been in church and what, when you got baptized or whether you got baptized in the Jordan and that was awesome or somebody sprinkled you, you know, on a mission trip. It doesn't matter that your identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. It says, if you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down for it is written. Now check this out. So the enemy is coming at Jesus with the pride of life, takes him up to the temple, and he says, all right, Jesus, tell you what, why don't you just show off a little bit? Why don't you show this world what a big deal you are, and why don't you just hop off the temple here? Because what's going to happen, he's going to quote some Bible verses about how the angels will come and rescue him. And then, here's what, I mean, this is crazy, the the devil begins to quote Bible verses. Do you get this? And this is before God gave us BibleGateway.com and you could just look it up, all right? Like the devil had to leaf through some Bible verses and be like, oh, I got that one. Which, by the way, I want to say this as tenderly as I know how, is that if somebody comes to you and they've got an idea and a Bible verse, so even the devil had an idea and a Bible verse. There are some great evil people throughout all of human history that have a Bible verse to back up whatever they wanted to do. That's why it's, it's, it's got to be rooted much deeper in, than some, some Bible verse that you could found to try to say what you want to say. So the enemy says, here's what the Bible says, Jesus. I mean, think about this. The devil is quoting the Bible to Jesus, but it's happening. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, the devil is saying, Jesus, why don't you just show off? Why don't you show this world what a big deal you are? Because the reality, the devil's kind of saying to Jesus, aren't you going to be lifted up? I mean, isn't that the point? Aren't aren't you here to be glorified and to show everybody that you are the Son of God? So if you are the Son of God, then why don't you just show off a little bit? And essentially what Jesus is going to say is, yeah, I'm going to be lifted up. but I'm going to be lifted up not by showing off, but I'm going to be lifted up by being sacrificed that God's ways and your ways are not the same, that I came to pour myself out, not be full of myself. And so Jesus says to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The third one. So that's strike two for the enemy. Now, at this point, because we have the privilege of 1 John, and I've already let you know, there's only three things that the enemy can come against. How many does the enemy have left? One, good. Everybody's so cautious when I ask a question. I'm like, I want to say Jesus, but I feel like it's a math number. Okay, yeah, one. There's three in total. We've already been through two. There's only one left, so you already know what it's going to be. All right? It's going to be the desires of the eyes. Verse 8. And again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, and here's the clue, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So look, the enemy comes at Jesus with his only three temptations that he has. And it's the desires of the eyes. Look here, Jesus, I'll give you all of this stuff. Verse 9, and he said, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. By the way, this is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. We live in this world where stuff, and I'm not against stuff. Everybody likes some stuff, okay? I like stuff too. Who doesn't like some stuff? The problem is, is when that stuff, the good things of God, but when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. And and you might look at that and be like, devil, how dumb are you? You think Jesus is going to bow down to you for some stuff? And yet, every single one of us, on a weekly basis, bows down in subtle ways to the enemy just for stuff. Like when we're dishonest at work, when we're dishonest with one another, when we cheat on our taxes, all of those kinds of things, so that we can have more stuff. We fall in this one over and over and over. Verse 10. And Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. So he's three for three, Jesus is, on quoting Bible verses. He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Verse 11. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, here's why I point these things out. It it, it just helps me to identify, again, when I'm trying to kill the sin that's trying to kill me in my own world. When I know that we have a tempter, that we have an enemy, and, and he wants to come and kill, steal, and destroy me. It helps me to understand what angle he's coming at me with. Because in my mind, because um, I like to bass fish. Anybody like to fish in here? Anybody like to fish? You like to fish? All right, good, good, good. Anybody got a boat? Raise your hand if you got a boat. All right, good. Love to pray for you after the service. All right, so, so I got a little pond in my front yard. to go fishing, bass fishing there, right? Some of the best bass fishing in the whole world is little neighborhood ponds right here in northeast Florida. And so when I go out, it, it, you know, when I go fishing, you use a lure, because it's alluring to the fish. And this is what the enemy does. But in his tackle box, he's only got three lures. Now, they are different sizes and different shapes and different colors, but he's only got three. And you're the, you're the big mouth bass, and he's the fisherman. And I'm telling you, when I, when I usually start with a black wor- worm because they just seem, seem to work best. And, and then you throw that thing out, and you just kind of drag it by where you think the fish are, right? And sometimes the fish is like, nah, <laughs> that's a worm. That's fake. I can totally tell that's fake. So then you try it again, right? You go real fast, or then you bump it along the bottom, or then you go real slow. And then if he doesn't go for it, the fish is like, I ain't even having that, okay? That's fine. You just clip that off, and then you pick something up. You pick a spinnerbait, right? And then you tie on the spinnerbait, and then you throw it. And when you drag that lure by the bass, and he looks at it, and he might think, you know, he might follow it a little bit, and then be like, no, 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 that's crazy looking. I'm not biting that, all right? So then you try it a few different times, right? You go fast across the top. Then maybe you do it kind of slow still nothing what do you do you clip that one off and then you put on like a top water plug maybe a hula popper All right, that's my favorite in the morning you throw it out there and you go boom boom then eventually eventually what happens in our little pond eventually the bass is like oh my goodness how in the world did this torpedo thing just fall out of the sky that looks like a delicious breakfast and then the the bass is tricked and he goes for it and he goes yes no and he's out (laughs) and then I Instagram right that's how it works That's us. Because every time I say this, I think it's the most brilliant thing I've ever said. You never write it down. Here's the thing about temptation. It's tempting. Temptation is tempting. And maybe not all of them, but there's one. There's something in that tackle box just based on the way you're wired and all fallenness and brokenness. And I'm telling you, he's throwing those lures in your face because the enemy's like a good bass fisherman. And he just, he just throws them over and over and over. And here's the thing, though. He's only got three He's got the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's it. And he's throwing one in your face. And the reality is, is that God has given us these weapons of grace to come against these temptations of the enemy. That God has given us these weapons of grace to come against the temptations of the enemy. The first one is this, is that when when the enemy throws at you the lust of the flesh, you know, that appetite, those passions, those kinds of things, sex, then, then the, the weapon of grace that God has given us is integrity. Is that we are called to be men and women of integrity. The word integrity, the root word is integer, which just means one. That the, Our response is that we have been called to live just a singular life. Our problem, especially as Americans, is that we live these compartmentalized lives. Like we like to segment our lives and, and live. And it's like we've got a work life and we've got, we got a fun life. We've got an online life, and we've got a porn life, we've got a party life, we've got a secret life, we've got a social life, we've got a church life. And we think that, man, I can just keep all these, all these parts of my life segmented. Did you know that idea would be so foreign to Jesus in the first century? When, when a um, guy comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, uh, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, with all of who you are, you have one life, and you take that one life, and you love God with it. In fact, in Hebrew there's no word for spiritual. So if you were to ask Jesus, "Hey, how's your spiritual life?" He would just talk about where he ate and his relationships and what he did for a living and where he went to church and all of those things would just be wrapped up in one life. And so when the enemy comes at you with a lust of the flesh, then the then the weapon of grace that God has given us is that life of integrity. And let me tell you, Facebook is not helping. Because most of us live these fake Facebook lives. It's just true. Let let me just tell you something that you already know. See, you know what's true about you. You just didn't know what's true about the other people that you're looking at Facebook. That's not their life. You don't take a picture of your real life and put it on Facebook. Not one of you got up this morning before you got ready and went, oh, check that out. No, because your friends be like, huh, right? (laughs) Somebody's hacked your Facebook. No, that's what I really look like. It's just true. Even today, even today, what's going to happen is some of you are going to go out and you're going to take mom on a picnic. Terrible idea. Just don't do it now. Take her to a real restaurant. But some of you are like, no, this would be great. And you go to the picnic, right? And you, the, you, and, you, and you get out the deal, and you sit down on the blanket. And Dad's like, I'm going to grill hot dogs. And while he's grilling hot dogs, uh, your children can't get along. And so you're over there like, well, you, if you don't act up, this is Mother's Day. You better act right. And you're yelling at them. Then you come back, and all the hot dogs are burnt to death. And you're like, oh, ugh. right? And, and then you scoop up the hot dogs. And then you feed everybody, and you, you will eat these hot dogs. And you will like them. There are starving children somewhere, all right? eat them and then you eat them and then the ants got in the potato salad and mom's just sweating it's nasty and mosquitoes are awful and it's just the worst idea ever but but before you leave everybody gathers around and (laughs) somebody else is your facebook and it's like what an amazing family no it's jacked up So when the enemy comes at you with the lust of the flesh the weapon of grace is integrity when he comes at you with the lust of the eyes the weapon of grace this is the easiest one is generosity if you're beginning to be enamored with the shiny stuff of this world if, if if the possessions of this world are beginning to possess you this is the easiest one to combat you just write a big fat check it is that see how it gets quiet everybody goes, dang it yeah that is it. If there's something that you want so bad, but somehow it's like it's got you like a tractor beam, don't buy it. Take the money that you were going to spend on that, and be generous with it. Give it to Northeast Florida. Write a big check. Invest it in the ministry here. That 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 you are generous, and the reason that you're generous, God's giving you this weapon of grace to combat this. This is easy. The third one is when the enemy of you, when the enemy comes at you with the pride of life, then then the weapon of grace is humility. Now, here's the reality. Humility is not a feeling. Humility is an action. It's an action. In fact, the Bible, I, can't, I don't know where it says be humble. It says humble yourself. And a lot of us think that being humble is a feeling. Oh, I feel humble. It would be kind of like if you came up to me at the end of the service, and I was like, man, you've been putting on some weight. Like, yeah, I wouldn't say that to you, but just pretend, okay? Uh, hey, man, you've been really put on some weight. And if you were to reply, yeah, I've been thinking about exercising and i've been praying about exercising and i've been visualizing myself exercising and everything like, that's awesome but listen exercise is something you do praying about it and thinking about it does not help you accomplish whatever health goals you have you have to exercise yourself and so the bible says you humble yourself regardless of what you feel like then as fast and as often as you can you go you put yourself as low as you can you you go last and you serve that's what it is. In fact, and, and I'm just going to tell you, this is the one I struggle with. The one that the enemy comes at me most often with is the pride of life. And here's where I'll tell you where it shows up in my world. Because I'm going to tell you, my, our staff here at 1122 and you as a church, y'all are the most honoring group of people I've ever seen in my life. I mean, the way my staff treats me, and the way this church treats me, and you know, we were at TPC this weekend, and I'm telling you, every three steps, i met one of you, and it's awesome. You say these wonderful things about me, and give me free stuff, and I don't know how many times in a restaurant lately, I'm, you know, we go to get the bill, and the waitress is like, hey, somebody from 1122 paid for it. And then, and then it's kind of creepy, because I don't know who you, I'm like, thank you. (laughs) All right, so here's the truth kind of get used to it. You just do real quickly. You know, like if I'm in a meeting, I say, do this. Everybody just does what I say. All right. And then, and then, for God to just wear me out. And then, I also coach Little League Baseball. And they don't know I'm Pastor Joby. All right. I'm just Coach Joby. And there are times where I tell our team, all right, boys, we're done. Everybody go get in the dugout. And nobody moves. And it is like an offense to my soul. Like, what is wrong with Where are your parents? All right. I mean, I freak out. And so here's what I know. I know that humility humility is, is me humbling myself, not just waiting for some kind of feeling to come. Now, here's the reality. Here's why I say it this way. Because girl, I didn't really grow up in church that much, but when I went to church, this is where the sermon would stop. This is typically where the sermon would stop. And I got to give you a big fat warning. Because Here's, here's how most of you, if you hear it this way, you're going to miss the whole thing. If you hear that the enemy has three temptations and he can come at you in these three ways, and so what you've got to do is walk out of here and try to be more humble and try to be more generous and try to live a life of integrity, you are going to fail miserably today. Today, the best of you among in the room, the moms, all right, you might make it until tomorrow, maybe. Maybe. But then, but then, in regards to humility, you're like, I really did awesome at being humble. You're done. It's over. You're prideful. <laughs> so the point, the point is not try harder. I know this is counterintuitive, but the point is not try to be more generous, try to live with integrity, try to be more humble. The point, put it in your notes, is that the gospel, the gospel gives us the power to live lives of integrity, generosity, and humility. You get that? The gospel gives us the power to live lives of integrity, generosity, and humility. It's, it, when you begin to understand the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that it's not you trying harder, but it's his life, death, and resurrection. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ in you that the one that had the power over sin and death that hung on the cross now lives inside of you. And the one that lives inside of you has the ability to give you um, a, a way to live a life of integrity that you don't have to hide anymore and generosity because he was first generous and humility because he humbled himself. That's how you do it. You don't lean on your own understanding, but you lean against the cross of Jesus Christ because if you just try to work this thing out, you can't. The reality is, is unless your life is rooted in the finished work of Jesus, that it will be uprooted by one of these three things that the enemy is going to throw at you to allure you away. You see, it's the gospel it tells me I can live a life of integrity. Do you know why I don't have to have a segmented life? Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He died for my whole life. The things that I'm ashamed of, the dark things, the things I might not ever tell you publicly, but I, I can expose it all to the light of Christ. Because when He died on the cross, it was proof that I needed a Savior. I did not need a life coach. I can't just try harder; that won't work. It's the gospel that allows us to live in integrity. So that when you've got some areas of your life and like people come to you and be like, man, that's a dark part of your life. You're like, I know, I know. Thank you, agent of grace, for pouring that out for, to me. And I just want to lean on the cross, not try to impress you with me trying to be a better version of me. The only way to live a life of integrity is surrender your life to Jesus and understand that he died for the whole thing, the whole stinking thing, even the things you're most ashamed of. It's paid for. And the way to be generous, the way to be generous is it's a response because God is generous. Because God is first. God loved you first. Even when you were still a sinner, before you'd done anything right, that God loved you. And He didn't give you leftovers in some food can drive. He gave you the best of the best of the best. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that Jesus Christ emptied Himself on the cross for you and for me. And so out of a response to that, Out of a response to that, the only way to respond to that kind of generosity is with generosity. That God loved us first and he gave us his his best. And so when you bring a first fruit offering, what you're saying is, God, you're first in my life and here's my best. And it's not, again, it's not because you figured out a budget in such a way to do that. You need to do that. That's a smart tool. But the driving force behind it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not you trying to get a grip on your own greed. You can't. That that will only be crucified at the cross. And the way to be humble, in fact, if you try to be humble, it's evidence that you're not. Right? Like, did you see how humble I was yesterday? You failure. That Jesus, the Bible says in Philippians 2, that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, literally in Greek. He poured himself out. And most of us are full of ourselves. And because he poured ourselves out, because he poured himself out for us. And if you're a Christian, you've surrendered your life to the lordship of Christ, and the spirit of Christ lives inside of you, and that humble spirit is in you. Therefore, you can pour yourself out on behalf of others. Why? Because you're awesome? No, because he is, and he did it for you. So, please don't hear, God's good, you're bad, try harder. Try to have more integrity. Try to be more generous. No, it's not that. It's you surrendered, you quit, you give up. you are be like, I can't do this, God. I need you to do this in me. And so these weapons of grace are legit as long as they are rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. Unless, you, unless your life is rooted in the finished work of Jesus, it will be uprooted by the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, or the pride of life. And it's the gospel, not your own power. It's the gospel that gives us the power to live lives of integrity and generosity and humility. And so the answer, the answer is found in verse 17. The answer is not try harder. The answer is this, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Underline that word abides. If you go to BibleGateway.com and you put in the word abides, the two primary ideas that are going to show up in the Scriptures in the New Testament are these two ideas. One is John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus says this, and so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Politicians are going to quote this all fall, okay, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Vote for me. That's not what that means. It means what Jesus is saying is if you abide in the word of God, you want to obey God, then you've got to know what he tells you to do. All three times when Jesus was tempted, how did he respond? It is written. It is written. It is written. Every single one of us in this room should identify those three areas that, that the enemy comes against us with. The pride of life, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And we should all have some it is written" in our back pocket so that we can quote them. We can, we get from memory, that we can claim the truth of the word of God as a weapon of grace against when the enemy comes against us. And, and I know that some of you are like, well, I ain't good at memorizing this stuff. Man, I call bull line on that. Because every one of you knew exactly when Dante Fowler's knee went out and how it happened and how long he's gonna be out. Here's what you remember. You remember what's important to you. And so I'm just telling you, if you're gonna abide in in Christ, then then he says, Abide in my word. And again, some of them, I'm not good at memorizing, man, whatever. Half the room knows every word to ice, ice baby. And what is that doing for your life? Made you dumber, didn't it? It did. And so you memorize what is important to you. And so when the enemy comes against you with the desires of the flesh, then you can know, flee sexual immorality. Don't flirt. Flee sexual immorality. For all the sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Whatever it is, whatever, whatever you need to memorize. When, when he comes at you with the desires of the eyes and there's all this stuff in this world, you could say, I mean, there's all kinds of verses you can memorize, all right? That, so what does it, it benefit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Whatever it is. And so you've got to abide in his word. Secondly, and, and just as important, is in John chapter 15, verses 4 through 5, Jesus unpacks this idea of abiding, and he says this. He says, abide in me. And that word abide just means stay close. Just stay really, really close. Abide in me and I in you. And as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So what do you do when the enemy comes against you? You stay close to Jesus. You stay close to Jesus. You abide in him. You abide in his word. Now here's the thing, coming up, um, where, the way I grew up and where I grew up, I was taught that if you were a good Christian, here's what you do, good Christians take hold of their sin and they hold them down. Well, fundamentally that's a flawed idea because there is no such thing as a good Christian. The Bible doesn't talk about being a good Christian, it says that we were dead and we've been brought to life. And so here's the good news about dead, there are no levels of dead, a little bit dead and a lot of dead all dead. And so you're either dead in your sins and trespasses or you're alive in Christ. And walking with Jesus and combating when the enemy comes at you is not about taking your sin and holding it down. The best illustration I've ever heard it's, it's trying, to, trying to live a life of sin management is like taking a, a beach ball out in the ocean and holding that beach ball under the water. Can you do it for a little while? I mean, when you're feeling good, and you know, right when you got out there, before you got sunscreen on your fingers and all that, you can hold it under there. But you know what happens? One big wave, or your arms get tired, or the thing gets slick, and it, and then what does it do? It doesn't just come up a little bit. I mean, it shoots up out of the water, and then you think, oh man. So you grab onto it again, and you push it down, and you got the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh and the pride of life, and you're like, man, I got, I so got this, right? And then what happens is it comes up again, and then eventually you be like, man, that's exhausting. I might as well quit. And you know what the gospel does? The gospel is, maybe while you're trying to hold those things down, then Jesus Christ comes walking by with a pocket knife and just sticks the beach ball. lets all the air out. And says, I've conquered sin and death. Abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in me. And only by the power of the gospel will you have the ability to live a life of integrity and humility and generosity. Amen? Amen. Would you please clap if you're going to clap? Amen. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you lived that perfect life, died that sinner's death, but were resurrected from the grave to give us power over anything and all that the enemy brings against us. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that the seed thrown out this morning would land on good soil. Lord, would you help us identify what kind of lure the enemy uses against us? And may we have a gospel response not a man-made response, not a, I got this, because, God, we don't have this. That our response will be rooted in you and you alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, you made your son, who was without sin, to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. And in that righteousness, God, may we, anybody in here that has surrendered their life to the lordship of Christ, that all of us would be able to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That means that we would walk in a manner that's full of integrity, generosity and humility because that's that's part of who you are we pray this in jesus name amen hey we respond to the gospel every week Uh, we're going to sing and we're going to respond together because because he saved us it's a big deal because he saved us and many of you probably need to come down to the altar because there's some areas in your world that you're struggling and again i need you to be praying like crazy Not that this week you'll do better, but this week you'll abide in him and he will abide in you and the Jesus in you will conquer those things that he's already conquered. And then also for those of you that are regulars, we respond in generosity because God first loved us. And so we bring our first and our best by bringing our tithes and offerings. You can do it electronically now. You can do it at the giving kiosk or any of the giving boxes around the room. However you need to respond, let's do so now.